Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Please welcome the one, the only, Miss Jane Krakowski. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. Of for course, being of here. course. Hi. Hi. So, Jane. Hi. Thank you so much for coming. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm blown. This is a very large chair. I feel like Lily Tomlin in her early skits. Just. <laughs> sit back, sit back, and let's talk your career. Um, people are loving the continuation of Schmigadoon, Chicago. Um, you play Bobby Flanagan in Chicago. Talk a little bit about you know there are so many amazing little Easter eggs um, to the theater, which is obviously your first love. That's how we saw you first here in New York City. Yeah. Talk a little bit about some of these fun little Easter eggs that are in Chicago. Um, well, first. Thank you for doing this tonight. Uh, we've known each other a long time, and it means a lot that you came here to do this for me. Um, so it has just been an incredible joy making the show, Schmigadoon and now Schmicago. Schmigadoon was made uh, with so much joy and love that it came out of the end of the pandemic when nobody could do work, and um, it was this gift that came of a, of a little niche of a musical show and we felt so special getting to make it because we were making it at a time when there was no theater on, there were no shows touring, there were no musicals anywhere, and we were this lucky little group that got to go to Vancouver and make this little show with our PPP on and PPE on, and um, it was just filled with so much love for what we all do. And it was a great surprise to get a second season. I think we all really thought we were just going to do one season and that was it. And the response was so incredible, thanks to all of you guys, um, that we, we got to make a second season. And I've been even more floored by the response to season two. Um, I feel like we almost went deeper into the niche category and it yeah. went more specific into musicals and more people like it, which I think is kind of incredible um, and magical about the show. I play Bobby Flanagan, who is the morally and physically flexible um, <laughs> to <say> the least. <laughs> lawyer of Chicago. Um, I love this character. I, I love building the characters that I get to play. And in this particular season of Chicago, it was a treasure trove for me because I was so familiar with all the musicals that we were um, sending up and or paying tribute to. So stuff like Sweet Charity and Chicago, obviously, and Chorus Line. Chorus Line, Sweet Charity, Chicago, Cabaret, um, all the ones that are, Sweeney Todd, Annie, all the ones that are in there. Um, and I remember opening the script on the, the first time I was sent it by Cinco, not having any idea who I would play in season two. Um, one of the great devices of the show is that we get to play different characters each season. And I thought, of course, I dreamed or guessed. And I thought, well, maybe 
I might, I'm probably too old to play Sally Bowles now. Uh, who could I possibly be? Would I be Mrs. Lovett? I don't know. Um, I never saw Bobby Flanagan coming. I thought maybe Roxy was probably more of a higher chance. Um, so when I opened it up and it was, it was, it was Bobby Flanagan, obviously, cl- most closely based on Billy Flynn from Chicago, where they had changed the gender, which was an Easter egg nod to um, company that was on Broadway at the time where they just made Bobby um, a woman for the first time. And you were Bobby B-O-B-B-I-E, like Bobby, in company in the revival. Correct. Right? And this is all like the genius, clever stuff that Cinco Paul puts into the scripts. And that is like, there is there was Easter eggs all throughout the script. It was just like this Wasn't amazing leotard, thing to read. Like a tribute to a court? Line? Um, that was one of the choices I made through the course of the creating of the character. Um, there were there. I mean, in that in my particular number, there are so many. I mean, obviously, the the things that were written in were that Bobby's vamp comes on every time she she talks, <laughs> um, which is more Roxy, I would say, than um, obviously Billy Flynn. Um, but in bells and whistles, I mean, there's there's endless ones, and that was one of the great great creative collaborations that I was able to have on this with Chris Catelli and Cinco Paul. Um, it said that she would come down uh, on a trapeze. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you went to trapeze school. I did. I did. Um, it said that I, she came down on the trapeze and then it was never mentioned again. And I said, well, if she's coming down a trapeze, if I was able to learn something on the trapeze, like a few tricks, would you let me stay on it? Would there be time to film more uh, of of Bobby on it? Because I thought, character-wise, it was a, a yet another way that she could mesmerize the jury yeah. um, and captivate them from all angles, even up in the air. And so they said, yeah. So coincidentally the trapeze school in, in Vancouver was less than like a half a mile from our studio. It was in the same part of town, which was so bizarre. So whenever I finished filming, I would just go over there and make an appointment. And I started like here on the, they make you start on the ground and we just kept going higher and higher until we could do the tricks all the way up at the top. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was an incredible gift, obviously. But then there's so much that goes into it. I mean, I think it goes into creating any character, um, wanting the makeup to be as glamorous as it should be for Bobby, but a nod to the decadence of the musicals of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the costume, we, it, we always were working with something gold. We wanted to make a salute to the um, final costumes in a chorus line of the finale and having her in something gold. We ended up stripping it down to a bodysuit uh, ultimately because I, I wanted to pay tribute to the women of Chicago then and now because they all wear bodysuits throughout the shows. Um, and a lot of them are just things that I think are fun for me to be able to throw in. I mean, there's, it's tiny things. When we say goodbye at the end, when we say goodbye to Josh and Melissa, I'm sort of do like fossy fingers to say goodbye. I mean, it's a musical theater lover's dream. And this is like the perfect combination for you, Jane. Uh, like I said, you've conquered TV, you've conquered the Broadway stage. You know, I'm just curious because you do, the stuff you choose and you've chosen in your, your career has been exceptional. What makes you choose a project? What makes you choose something when you open a script, a script comes to your desk, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to do this? Mm. I think there's an innate understanding and excitement. And the best feeling in the world is when you get that feeling when you open up a script and read something. 
And it's so disappointing when you don't. Because <laughs> then the decisions become a lot harder whether you want to do something or not. I, I was sort of thinking about this. I, I'm a Libra, and I'm, very, I'm not very good at making decisions uh, in all things in life. I can relate. I'm a Libra, too. Are you? What's your date? September 24th, first day of Libra. What's yours? October 11th. There you go. Um, and so I've always battled with decision-making, and I realized... The ones that are so obvious, there's never any question that you should do it or why you want to do it or why it means something to you. And I, it's so, and then you get like a lot of other scripts sent to you and you're like, Oh, I'm not sure. Is this right? And that means there's something probably not there for you or that you, you shouldn't maybe not do it because you didn't get that feeling initially. And then it becomes more of a job versus something that you have a passion for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I followed that a lot and definitely the big jobs that I think have defined my career or that have, that have changed things or that have meant the most to me. I've always had that initial excitement, understanding, and a little bit of fear. The fear being the reality that I have to now pull it off, you know, because there's this great excitement of getting a script, say, like Chicago and seeing my role and seeing that number bells and whistles and being like, yes, I cannot wait to do this. Thank you so much, Cinco, for giving this to me. And it's like, oh, wait, I've got to do this. <laughs> I've got to now, like, figure out what tricks can be done. It ended, it was written that it was ended in the splits, which I hadn't really done since 2016. And <laughs> she loves me a and whole number. So you were, you were prepped, though. You were prepped. Thank you, one person. <laughs> Thank that, you. That, that, that's, Jane, Jane, that's been preserved. That's been preserved on film. So if no. you have not seen her do She Loves Me, it is out there. Uh, but yeah, I was like, wow, he's bringing those back. Um, okay. I mean, obviously, when you get a number called Bells and Whistles, you know you're going to have to throw in a lot of special skills and any Bells and Whistles, obviously, that you have in your repertoire. Some were written in, like the roller skating, which was a meta nod to my Broadway debut in a show called Starlight Express. <laughs> <laughs> little respect around here for the Broadway community. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, what were some of the others that were in there? The splits, I, I remember feeling, I literally started stretching the day after I closed the script. Like the next morning I got up and got my dance warm-up out and just started doing my little things and stretching and getting them back and uh, because I'm sure I ripped a lot of things doing the splits eight times a week. Um, on Broadway. And so when he wrote them back in, I was like, oh, it is a great ending, but can I get them back in time? Um, luckily they came back pretty much in time. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I've been very lucky to be offered some incredible roles. And this I think is the most important part with incredible collaborators. Mm -hmm. And that is my favorite part of, of being an actor. I, I sort of realized well, when making Chicago that Chicago sort of brought in, it kind of brought both sides of my career together. My love of obviously musical theater and the creative process of being in a rehearsal hall and collaborating with everybody and working with a choreographer and finding out who she is and what her physical language is. And my love and lucky experience of being in great comedy television Mm -hmm. and I felt like this combined them all like it all sort of just all came together with the way that Schmigadoon has been created the way we make it the way it is told with so much love through Cinco Paul's writing Um, and so to go to your question about how you choose I think it's 
it's that just innate feeling that you you want to play this role. And I think the the some of the roles that have meant the most to me, I've had to really fight for. Can you give us some of those? Yeah, sure. Um, well, one being nine, uh, which was a Broadway musical that I, I did a few years ago. Thank and, you. And, and one the Tony for. And it was just a part I I loved and I wanted so badly. And after three auditions, they just didn't see it and they didn't get it and they weren't going to pick me. And I, it, I think, I want to say it's one of the very first times I did not want to accept no for an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, I've got to meet with him one more time. If you can get me another meeting with the director, with my brilliant agent, Bill Butler. And I said, I just, I really want to... I, I, I know I'm supposed to play this part, and I really would just love to get to meet with him This again. was right after Ally McBeal. It was right after Ally McBeal. Um, I was living in L.A. making Ally McBeal, and I knew the show was coming up. I wanted to come home. I really wanted to return to the theater, and this show came up, and I've always had an affinity. And I think you, there's other connections to Nine that, if we have time, we can get into later. Um, and I just really wanted to be a part of it. And I was lucky enough to get the meeting with the director and, which was David Laveau. And I, 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 I basically said, why don't you see that I should be this part? <laughs> and I, I had sung for them. I had done the, I'd sung the number. Like, you know, they make you do the, the song from the show at this point in auditions. And I had read the material. And I then just basically explained to him why I really did believe I was this person. Believe it or not, I had like only 15 minutes with him at that time, and he had to go to to something that was on his schedule, and I knew I didn't have it yet. I I just, I I knew, I I said, please give me more time. Mm -hmm. If you can see me later tonight when you get home, or if you can see me tomorrow, I'm here, and I really want to meet with you. He said he would meet with me again. At that final meeting, I decided I was just going to be Carla the entire time. It was, I'm sure it was disgusting. I was really like, so you don't see me as this part? Like, I don't understand why. Because I really love it. And his response? Crazy. It was like an hour long of that. Was he just like, you got it. You got the part. You got the part. And he said, he said, I know what you're doing. I was like, really? What? She was way more than that that <laughs> crude impersonation I am doing. Uh, but I think it was that he said, I know what you're doing and you have the part, which was incredible. <laughs> I love it. And and how how far into it did you, whose idea was it that you were going to come down from the ceiling in a bed sheet and you were going to exit from a bed sheet? Okay, I will answer that in one second, but I just want to complete that thought with on the very first day of rehearsal, David Laveau then came in uh, and, you know, did his opening speech about how great it was to have everybody there. And he had said every single person in that cast told him that they were supposed to be there. And so it took it until that moment that I said, I am supposed to be here with you on this. That changed it. And I thought that was a a great life lesson, Mm. a great lesson as an actor to to care so much that you're not willing to accept no. And I mean, that is, to me, is one of the most important projects I worked on in my career and taught me so much and um, made such an impact and almost made me more sweet because they made me work so hard for it. But I think that's true. And, and the other instance was 30 Rock. 30 Rock, I'd met with them a bunch of times. Um, another instance where I really just didn't want to, 
let them walk away. Um, I had, I had met with them and there was so much time in between each time I had met with them. And I was like, what? Like I would call every day because I just, I loved that script and I wanted to be a part of that show. And, um, I met when they were like, you've already been on a TV show. We can't afford you. Um, which sounds crazy. I know. Um, because <laughs> I come very cheap. <laughs> but, um, they said, no, no, we, and, and, it was one of those things where I said, just, can I come back in? And they're like, no. And then we worked out sort of a system where it made sense for everybody. It made sense for them financially. It made sense for the, what my quotes were at the time. And I mean, all this crazy sort of behind the scenes stuff. And that show changed my life, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was, it was, I think there's always a time when you know and you want, you may not get it in the end. And there's been many roles that I have not gotten fighting hard or trying hard and I think when you know inside your person that it's worth being persistent about and 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 really fighting for and those two were obviously very very um important career changing jobs for me Mm. so um definitely worth it in nine it uh nine nine is a really interesting um experience and way to sort of describe how I go about finding characters, really. The process. The process. Because with Nine, I obviously had such an affinity for the character. I loved her. I, I, I felt so much empathy for her. I understood who she was as a mistress, never fully getting all the love. I, I just, I related to her in every way. Mm-hmm. And then... I was also ec- extremely aware of how amazing Anita Morris was mm-hmm. in the original production and how I, I felt Anita Morris was the image that we, that stayed with us, her in that, that amazing cat suit, mm-hmm. her doing all of that, all those incredible movements on the, on those black boxes that were, and, and they were white and, and they changed color in, in the two acts. Um, and I thought, Okay, well, I know who she is so deeply inside of me, but how can I make Carla new for now? Mm. I knew that she needed something spectacular and wonderful, but I, I knew it couldn't be anything that Anita had done. Mm. And so that is where in lie the character building started and many conversations with the director, with the brilliant choreographer, uh, Jonathan Butterall. And it, I just find the fast, I find the whole process so fascinating. It had initially started as a number, um, on the table with a mirror above her where she was having sex with herself looking in the mirror. 70s and cool. Um, <laughs> and it just was like kind of good. It was, it was good. And I, it just didn't seem like we had gotten to where it, it was to the level of what the character deserved or, I think the mark that was left on the role of Carla. And then one day I was going to a fitting, um, for, for our costume fittings, which were always after our rehearsals, like right after rehearsal, 6 p.m., we'd go over to our fittings. And I went to my fitting and David Laveau, we were sharing a cab there because we were going to have our, our first discussion about what the character's costumes would be. And he goes, I had a vision last night. I think, 
you need to come from the sky. I want her to be otherworldly, an otherworldly kind of woman. So I need you to come in from the sky. I don't know how, but that's what we're, I think that's what it is. And I literally leaped from my side of the, of the cab to his side and just said, thank you. Cause we didn't know what it was going to be or how it was going to be, but it just felt like that was it. Wow. And we then tried, you know, flying like they did in Peter Pan, which was not right. And we, we looked into a million things. And you, you may know this, but I'm a big fan of Broadway Bears and a regular customer. Um, and uh, I remember them doing something so beautiful on, the, on what I now know are called silks. Mm-hmm. And... I said to the director, I said, you know, I saw this thing that was so beautiful and it, it kind of looks like a bed sheet. Should we consider this? And he watched a video of it and then that's where it was born. And so it was a total collaboration between everybody. And then it became something so unique and special, but all created through the long character building thought process. Um, and, and, and even at that fitting, I was meant to be wearing like a very tight Marilyn Monroe kind of dress, which is wonderful for the character of Carla, but it looked so not right on me. I have no waist. I am, I have no body of that nature to speak of. And so I was like, I really think we should like, is, can we look at anything else? And based on sort of my body type and the times that we were, um, the, the, the setting of the show, we realized that she could be more fashion forward and sort of be the early onset of the, the sixties with the, with the little A-line dresses. Um, and then she, the, I had an image of a, of Marilyn Monroe holding up a see-through scarf. It's a very, I think it's a pretty famous Burt Stern photo. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm sort of feeling this. And that's when they made it see-through. And then she had a vision of water because water was a recurring theme, our, our magnificent costume designer. So she put the crystals on it to make it look like water was just dripping on my body. And so I just think it's just an amazing, I love that creative process. I love figuring that all out. And then, then you just need some magic to happen, <laughs> which is, you know, that's that you can't control. Well, you gave us magic on that stage. You've given us magic yeah. many times. Thank and, of course, on screen this season with Chicago. I want to go back to the very beginning because you grew up right across the river in Jersey. Mm-hmm. Your father was a chemical engineer. Yes. Your mom was a teacher. <laughs> yes. But at night, they were performers. Y- yes. I mean, they were heavily involved in a community theater in, uh, in the town next to my hometown. Um, they, they were incredibly creative people. There was always music and singing and dancing, and my father was an amateur magician as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, I just grew up in a very a creative household. When did you know that, you know, this is something I want to do, and my parents are behind me. They are supporting me, and they're letting me do this. So early on. Um, so my parents were very active in a local community theater, which I hope they thrive and still continue to exist. I, I, I'm not that familiar whether community theaters are still out there and doing well. I really hope that they are. This particular one that my family started in is, is alive and well and thriving. It's called the Barn Theater in New Jersey. And um, so they used to just bring me to rehearsals with them instead of getting a babysitter. They would just bring me and I would, I kind of basically grew up backstage at this community theater um all of the time that we and you know all the shows that they were in 
obviously were sinking in. I don't know if it was, you know, obvious to me then, but it was a, a great influence on me. And it was also where I saw my parents having fun, mm. um, where they were expressing their passion and their creativity and having a great community of people. And that's where all their friends were. And um, I know all of those details impacted me to want to do this. Mm. You auditioned for Starlight Express at age 17, or you booked the show at age 17, but I love how you got the show because you were actually up for Les Mis. Is that correct? Right. They were both auditioning. There was like a long other, like, uh, process in the middle. Starlight Express wasn't my first job ever. Um, it was my first Broadway show. Um, but at I. At 17. At, at 17. But I started when I was nine. <laughs> I've been doing this a really long time. So like 20 years I've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> You never age, Jane Krakowski, you never age. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I started I started when I was nine. I was I, I literally was one of those people who uh, I had a dance teacher that I was taking with and he circled an audition in backstage um, for an open call and we waited online outside a, a Broadway house and I was probably number four hundred and ninety-six or some something around there. And I went in and I sang my 16 bars for Graciela Danielle and Michael Bennett, who were the people creating the show. Wow. What show was it? Um, it was called the Millican Breakfast Show. They did, it's now YouTube. Um, uh, they were like, they were, uh, industrials where they would sell a product, but they put on like a Broadway show, a live Broadway show. Um, and you know, for some, Reason, luck, I, I don't know what. I actually, I, I did ask Graziella why she picked me, but I got that job and that started um, a lifelong love of doing what I do. Talk, talk about... By the way, she said she cast me because I had a really low, I had an extra low voice then. I used to talk like this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure why, but we had to, she said, you came in looking like, I, 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 this is this is a paraphrase, but she, she, you came in like this cute blonde, but you talked like Brenda Vaccaro. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay. But then to get through eight shows a week, I had realized I was speaking in the wrong register um, and I was losing my voice a lot. And I went to the great Joan Later, uh-huh. um, who helped teach me how to respeak in my proper register for my voice um, and taught me how to get through eight shows a week. Um, and it, it worked. It but worked. I, I don't have that low Brenda Vaccaro voice anymore. <laughs> so talk about booking your first Broadway show because, you know, at age 17, I think you were a senior still in high school. Yep. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, I was auditioning for Les Mis, as you said, for Sir Trevor Nunn. Um, that was like the big show everybody wanted to be in, and it was coming to the States for the first time. Yes, we were at the end of the 80s and the British invasion of musicals. Um, and I got pretty far. I, I think it was down to me and one other person, or uh, pretty close to me. And um, they then got the equity waiver for Francis Ruffell to come over, who um, had great success with the part of Eponine in England. And that was always what they wanted to do, was to bring her over to the United States. And equity gave them the waiver. And so when I, th- there was no longer a role for me in Les Mis, um, Trevor asked if I would audition for Starlight Express. <laughs> and he asked me if I roller skated at all. And um, I said only at preteen birthday parties in New Jersey. <laughs> Um, and he said, well, would you come over? Like, are you, are you game to try? And I, of course, said yes, because I wanted nothing more than to be able to make my Broadway debut and to get to work with Sir Trevor Nunn. Um, and I 
went to the auditions uh, and you had to skate first. <laughs> you didn't get to the singing until you could skate. Uh, so we skated, I skated first and there were a lot of really good skaters there. Um, <laughs> and I mean, anybody who roller skates like, this is my opportunity, this is my golden ticket. There's finally a show for me. Um, and I, we went forwards and backwards, which I could kind of do. And then they said freestyle. And I genuinely thought that going like this was freestyle. And that's all I really did. And there are people doing cartwheels and spins and flips around me. I was like, what's happening? Um, and I think I just looked like I had the moxie that I was willing to try and willing to learn and willing to fall down um, and get back up. And so I really think that's how I got in. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You've worked with, you know, some incredible people over the course of your career. And we'll, we'll get more into the TV stuff, obviously, on, on stage as well. Who has had the, the biggest influence on you in terms of, you know, sharing a moment, whether it's behind the scenes, on screen, or on stage with? Oh, my gosh. That is a very tough question. Because I think, I think you meet several people like that mm-hmm. um, over the course of a, a, a long and thankful career. Um, and I think there are certain uh, posts along the road of people that change your life or influence you. I think for sure, obviously, Trevor changed the, the trajectory of my career, I, I felt by um, giving me a, a chance to be in a Broadway show and learning that discipline, um, learning how hard it is to do eight shows a week, um, learning how to maintain. That was when I learned I really didn't know how to sing for eight shows a week. Mm. Um, and I was losing my voice quite a bit. And um, that also was a very loud show. <laughs> um, it was, you know, quite a sporting event with lots of um, loud recordings and, and racing. Um, so uh, we had to sing over a lot. But I, that absolutely trained me to learn the discipline of how to be in a Broadway show, that I loved it, that I loved every bit of how hard it was, and I still do to this day. Mm-hmm. That's part of it for me, that that being exhausted, that, that making your entire day culminate to going on at 8, 8 p.m. is such a beautiful discipline and a lucky gift to be able to do that um, and to... Uh, so that that's one of them. That's definitely a major one. Um, Grant Hotel was a major one, and Tommy Tune because mm. Tommy Tune is repeatedly, oddly, and you know this, repeatedly come up in my career, and and even without even being involved in some of the shows, has been a part of some of the the life changing um, times in my career. It's a, it's a, I don't know if I'm supposed to go into this in this kind of talk, but it's, it's, I first auditioned for Tommy Toon when I was about 12 years old for the original production of Nine, the musical Nine. See how it's all going to come through, full circle. Um, at one point he was talking about making the Lady of the Spa uh, a girl who was on the precipice of becoming a woman. Um, and it was a beautiful idea. I loved, uh, the concept. I went to the 46th Street Theater. 
um, where they were doing the workshop and all those boxes were on the stage and all the girls were there and it, I had to wait for them to clear for lunch. And then they put me on the boxes and he said, are you willing to play for like 45 minutes? And we improv stuff and we made stuff up and I, we worked on what we thought the character might be that was in his mind. And I didn't get it. And they, they didn't, they didn't go with that idea. They hired an, a, an amazing, beautiful adult woman to play that role. Um, three or four years later, I think, I was in L.A. making a pilot of a really cool TV show that didn't get picked up by NBC. Um, and I knew I was, I was going home with no job. And I got a phone call from Tommy Toon saying... Um, I would like to meet with you again. I'm doing a Broadway show called Grand Hotel, and I remember you from our times working for nine. Wow. And I think you'd really be right for this. And I was, I got on a plane immediately. Um, and I showed up, and again, they were already in rehearsals for the workshop of Grand Hotel. So I was there at the hotel where they were doing the workshop. I met with him again. Uh, which then became what is the set of Grand Hotel? It looked just like that. The, the, the hotel setting that we were in, this decayed ballroom. I worked with him for like another like 45 minutes and he popped open a bottle of champagne and poured me a glass and said, welcome to the cast. Wow. Um, <laughs> thank you. Wow. <laughs> so sweet. It's a beautiful story. Um, and then, I mean, I just sort of think about how one person can have so much influence in your life because then I went on to make a dream of dream come true of mine by winning a Tony for the musical nine in a different role. So a Tommy has just been a, a beautiful, creative, influenced, spiritual um, person that has gone through my, my career. I love that. And I should also point out Grand Hotel was your first Tony nomination too. It was, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was the first time I played a human on <laughs> 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 a train. Um, and that was one of the most creative experiences I'd, I'd ever had um, working on mine because it started based on the novel by Vicki Baum and I'd never create, well, I'd never created a, a role for a new musical from scratch yet. And so we, st I mean, and we started from scratch. Tommy would say, go home and read chapters one through three of the Vicky Baum novel. Wow. And we would come in and we would work with Peter Stone, the great Peter Stone who wrote the book, um, and add color or elements that weren't there and um, help really develop the characters. It's the time I got to work with Michael Jeter, mm. who I had never seen anyone create such a detailed, thorough beautiful depiction of a person uh, and the role he played. I obviously got to work with David Carroll, who I um, had such a massive talent crush on um, at the time. I used to, it's like an inside Broadway story, but we used to play on the Broadway show league when I was in Starlight Express and he was in chess. And I used to just hang out like all the time, just wanting to hang out with him. And she was like, who are you? Why are you following me? But then we got to work together. Um, and, you know, a year of workshops, a year of being out of town in Boston, the show got bad reviews in Boston and we worked on it every single day. I had a different musical number every single night, a different version of a musical number every single night in Boston and then also on Broadway. Um, I have a great friend who's really good at like uh, 
going going down roads on YouTube where like you start with one great music video like June is busting out all over or one of those greats and then um it somehow there was a my uh, it was like the first or second preview of, of Grand Hotel on Broadway and so we played it for fun and obviously a bootleg nobody record Broadway it's terrible don't do that <laughs> but, um we I didn't recognize the number. It was oh, so wow. far away from what it ended up with less than a month later. Wow. I was like, I don't think I, did I do that? Like it was so, because there were so many, we did, we learned new numbers literally every day until we got the show right. Um, so that was obviously a great influence. And interestingly, the last original musical, because then it really became that I did. It was the, it's been the wave of, of revivals ever since then. And, you know, you look at a number like Bells and Whistles, Jane, and, you know, you are such a master at your craft and doing a musical theater number for the television or for screen like Bells and Whistles. It's almost like you're, you're picking the best of your incredible stage career. I also want to point out, you know, you do this amazing Sondheim patter in Bells and Whistles. You worked with Sondheim. You did, I think, the first revival of Company on Broadway. I did. I did. And that was the second time I'd worked with him. I also did a... Uh, a little night music. I played the, the young child when I was like 12, um, and he was a part of that too. Wow. Yeah. Well, what do you remember with working? Because, you know, Mandy Butinkin has told me many times that being in the room with Sondheim is like, you know, to be able to rehearse with Sondheim in the room, that is the closest, you two, you're one of the lucky ones, to, to that will be the closest one will ever be to, to know what it's like to work with Mozart or to know what it's like, you know, being in the room with Beethoven. I mean, he was a master. No one is like him. What did you learn from Sondheim? Um, that he's the best note giver I've ever come across in my life. I'm so exact, so simple, clear. Um, the most intimidated I was was when making the cast album for Company. Company. Um, was recording You Could Drive a Person Crazy with him in the booth, hearing every single note that we hit or not hit exactly correctly. Um, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. And we had already done the show. Like, the probably show was on for a long time. Yeah. But suddenly when Sondheim is in the control room, you're like, do I know this? Am I singing the right notes? Like, what am I doing? Um, and when you get like, that was good, you're like, your life is made. It's yeah. kind of amazing. I feel very, very lucky that I've gotten to meet him, work with him. Also, you know, he writes everybody back. He was known for writing everybody the back. Notes. And the notes, I I had a framed note from him up in my uh, my first New York apartment for like 10, 15 years. Now it's in a very tight safe. Um, I'm keeping it forever. But, um, you know, it means that much to you when you're sort of in in that musical world and you get a note back from Sondheim. So you're kicking ass on Broadway with Grand Hotel, Company, you're do, you did Starlight Express, and then you go out to L.A. to audition for Alan McBeal. Mm-hmm. Talk about that experience of booking Alan McBeal, and did you know then that this was going to be a moment that was ultimately going to change your life? And David Kelly is one of the people that is one of those giant signposts along the way of somebody who did change my life. Um, no, I... I think, are there a lot of actors here? There, there are, right? Okay, great. Um, so if you've ever gone through pilot season, 
there's always one or two scripts that are the ones you kind of know are great. And Ally McBeal was one of those. Mm -hmm. Ally McBeal was... I auditioned, this is a known story, um, I auditioned for Friends a few times and did not get it, but that was one of those scripts that everybody wanted to audition for. It just was, it was great on the page, and Ally McBeal was very different on the page and unique. And so I felt like uh, it was known to be one of the good scripts of that pilot season. Um, and I auditioned a few times in New York and then was asked to come out and audition for David E. Kelly in person. And the net, you know, you go to the network and then the studio. I, I don't know if they still do it that way, but I would assume it's, it's, it's pretty similar. And this is one of the times where I truly am not sure I would have gotten this part without the casting director's help. Mm. The casting director gave me a wonderful note right before I went in for my final test for Ally McBeal, which I will share with you. And I really do think that's what made the difference. Um, she, she knew I had done a lot of theater and I don't know. She must have sensed that if there was a lot of people in the room, I would be playing to the room. <laughs> and she said, remember, this is for television. Play it for the camera. Hmm. Don't play it for the people in the room. And I, calibrated my audition very differently immediately because of that note she gave me. And wow. I really do believe that that helped me get the job. Wow. And I'm so thankful. I, I send her, I send her flowers all the time. I sent her flowers when I got the job. I sent her flowers when I was lucky enough to be nominated for a Golden Globe for that show. And still to this day, I thank her because that absolutely, Ally McBeal absolutely changed the trajectory of my career and gave me, opened up a world to me. So, Jean, you casting directors are your allies. They want you to do great in the room. They, and if they can help you, they know stuff we don't know. That's what I find kind of really very hard about uh, a home taping. And, and you get no guidance whatsoever. And, and I home tape for things. And I, is that what they call it? They call it home taping? Self tape. Thank you. Um, I, I knew I was saying the wrong word. Um, I do it, and I feel completely adrift. I feel like I'm just going to take a guess at it, I guess. And I I miss the days where you got at least the first guidance from the casting director in the room, and then when you went on for more callbacks, the guidance from the director or the writer or the, the people so you know more of what they're looking for. I don't I, – I really – salute people who do great self-tapes and who can get a get a job off of self-tape because I think it's I think it's very hard without any any in in-person um guidance yeah yeah and and I know I I mean Ally McBeal is definitely one where the guidance in the room helped me change your life yeah you give us comical on screen on stage who are your comedy idols who do you look up to when it comes to comedy oh my god there uh, it's Endless. Um, first person that comes to mind. Well, Tina Fey is going to be the first person that comes to mind <laughs> because I think she is, well, she's another person who, who changed my life in many ways um, and who I admire beyond belief how smart she is, mm -hmm. how clever she is, how wonderful of a person she is, how real she is. Um, Catherine O'Hara is one of my comedy 
goddesses that I adore and love. Um, Madeline Kahn, mm. um, Carol Lombard, mm. going, going back really far, um, screwball comedies. Yeah. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's, it's hard to, I, people always, when they ask you like one person, I, I, I feel like it's such a bigger. I'm putting you on the spot, Jane. Yeah, We're yeah, talking yeah. your career. We're talking your life. Let's talk Tina Fey since you brought her up. Talk about that meeting. How'd you first meet Tina? Um, I met Tina just being called in for the role of Jenna. Um, and I, it was a really small meeting. I went to Broadway Video and it, it was Robert Carlock and Tina were the only two people in the room. And we talked for a long time. And then we talked about the part and the role. Um, I, I think most people know this, but the, the pilot was already made of 30 Rock. Um, and they realized that they were going to change out the role of Jenna. It was the great Rachel Dratch. Um, and they, I mean, the way I, the way I saw it was I think they, I felt like they needed someone who is the polar opposite to Tina Fey. Um, Tina Fey being smart, <laughs> brunette, um, grounded um and they needed a foil they needed the they needed the opposing character for that um and uh i met with them then i don't know if we i i must have read something that first day and then i came back then there was like a month or something it was a really really long time um which i referenced earlier and then they brought me back in for what was a test like a, a chemistry test with tina and it was you know tina and i did some scenes and then i think another month went by or something really long and i was dying um and then i i luckily got the call that they they gave me the offer and i've never played a part that i have loved so much as having the uh farcical limitless comedy space to play Jenna. I love it. In terms of co- And that's really all the writers and the writing because they made they they made a show where it was its own reality, right? I mean, yes, it was based on sort of NBC and um that you know behind the scenes of a late night show like that of like a variety comedy show a la SNL, I guess. And, um, but as the seasons went on, it became its own world where everyone, certainly, I, I believe, certainly Jenna and Tracy were farcical characters and, and pr- practically vaudevillian, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they didn't know any better as limited people... <laughs> That they could get away with so much, so, so much. Um, and that is a case. I really think when I think about the big jobs in my career, the creators set up a world that was limitless for you hmm. to create. In terms of co-stars, again, you've shared the stage, you've shared the screen with some amazing people. Who do you still want to 
have as a co-star? Is there anyone in particular that you still are, you know, that's someone I want to check off the list, having had so many incredible collaborators? There are so many. Um, I feel... I feel now, as a... uh, as an older person, as a person who's been doing this for a long time, as a single mother of a 12-year-old, um, I think I want to work with great people. I, I feel like I have so much more to learn still and that I want to learn. I, I love what we do. I, I love this business so much. I am so beyond thankful that I still get to, to do this. Um, but I think it's it's longing to work with great people, mm-hmm. um, people that are the best at what they do, um, people that will take a chance on me or teach me something new. Um, and yet, I think you look at Schmigadoon came along as this beautiful little unicorn of a show that was such a gift I never saw coming. I didn't necessarily pursue it. You know, it's sort of... I was asked to do some readings of the early scripts before it was, I think, even greenlit. Um, and I just loved it. I, it was made, I'm the person who would watch it at home. Like I was at the first like early readings and I was like, this is for me. Like I want to watch this. Um, and I wanted to be in it in any way I could. Um, they weren't even sure how many episodes they were going to do. They didn't know which characters would be in or wouldn't be in. Um, I had read many different parts through the different readings, whatever, whatever part they needed me to read. Cause I was, you know, there with a group of other actors and we all just would swap parts. Um, Bob Babiglia, like, played the young boy from season one, like, the music man kid. He was hilarious. Wow. And I was literally, after the reading, like, you should play this. <laughs> He's like, I'm a grown adult man. <laughs> I know, but you were so, he was so good. He was so funny. Um, he played, like, ten roles in every reading that we did of, of that show. So, you know, sometimes, like, a surprise comes along. Yeah. And it's, of, I think Cinco is the best in show to make this show. I mm-hmm. think he is the best man to make this show. And uh, with the best cast, like the best of Broadway performers are in it. The A-listers. best of comedy are in it. A-listers. Keegan and Cecily are yeah. insanely talented and insanely funny. And, you know, it sort of came by surprise. We were all home during the pandemic. You know, there was not, not much going on. And then this, you know, I call it a unicorn of a show because I'm, I, I am surprised, but also so thankful that Apple TV plus wants Mm -hmm. to make it, Mm -hmm. you know, and that we've just had this incredible time of making it. And that I think, I mean, I personally felt that season two got even better than season one. And which is interesting because I think I think it got more specific to its yeah. niche, and more and more people responded to it. So it that's an interesting thing for me to learn, and you know that you just don't expect that you you don't have to go more general or more universal. We actually went, I thought, deeper into the into the genre, and more people responded to it, which is great. I just I, I want to point out in season one, you have this amazing moment where you do this whole dance number in a car. 
<laughs> uh, as you're playing the Baroness. Just can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that number and how you like that all came to be? Because I mean, we were in the thick of COVID, I think, when you were putting yeah, that together, yeah, right? Yeah, we were, we were, and we. Um, yeah, it was obviously written that we were driving. I knew the number was in a car. Um, I, I, at this point now knew which part I would, would be able to get to play in, in Schmigadoon. And I loved the Countess. She is amazing. Um, Blurky, I think she's also known as, um, <laughs> Countess von Blurken, um, Blurky for short. Um, which I thought it was hilarious because they, they put, like she had, uh, vanity plates and it said blurky on it. Like, it's like a dumb detail, it's but all I the loved details, it. All but the I loved details. it. Um, so we were in the thick of COVID. I worked for, I think, three days in season one. Um, and that's all I was available for. And with the COVID restrictions, I, I quarantined for two weeks and then worked for three days. <laughs> worth it. So worth it. Um, TV gold. It was, it was pretty awesome. And, uh, I because I'd done the readings with Cecily, I was so we had like an I think an instant comedy chemistry, and I'd never met her before prior to some of those read throughs and stuff like that. And I knew my stuff was going to be with her, and I was so thrilled for us to get to do our scenes together. Um, I we made up a lot of stuff on the moment, which I just loved getting to do that back and forth with her, especially because she's unbelievable at what she does. Um, and yeah, the number of the car was created on two fold-out chairs in an empty office with myself and Chris Catelli and a boombox of the track. Um, and we sort of just started with the front of the car and we got to, there's like a tiny dance breaky section and I was waiting to see what he was going to suggest first. And, you know, sort of that collaboration that you do in the room. And I said, well, he said, well, what were you thinking? I said, well, I have this idea that I can flip back and land in the back seat and do a dance break in the back seat. And he said, really? Like, and I said, well, I don't know. We'd have to try it in the car, obviously. So we never rehearsed that until we got to set the day of filming on set with the car. We rehearsed the first part on the two fold out chairs. And then I would just like hypothetically say, okay, this is where I'm going to do that. And then maybe this. And then, and then we got the car and the car was the smallest car. <laughs> it's the most adorable car, but it's the smallest car I've ever seen made and we were like oh no like maybe i can't do this maybe we have to like make something up really quickly because we're filming in two hours and um oddly the car was exactly my size <laughs> it was it's just it was just i don't know if this is like just life luck or i don't know i mean they're one of my my Biggest pieces of advice I give to people because I believe I have been blessed with so much luck along the way in my career. I always say, be ready for when luck comes your way mm. because you don't know when luck is going to come, but you, you take those dance classes, have your voice ready, be fit to whatever level is your thing or, you know, be ready for when luck comes along. Um, and so yeah, we got in the car. I never technically thought it out. Um, it's like I, I, I oddly compare it to my bowling game um, where I just throw it. And if I get a thing, I'm like, oh, wow, that's great. Um, 
And we, I, I just sat back, flipped back and somehow fit in the car. Like my, literally my legs to my head fit exactly in the back seat. Um, and we made up some leg choreo, (laughs) choreography, and we went to set. Um, and I, I, it was one of those things where I was like, if I think about how I did this, I'm not going to be able to do it. So I just literally each time just fell back and hoped I didn't get hurt. Well, you made it work. <laughs> you made it work. Um, we do I just want to say one thing about that, too, because then, then the final scene that we shot was the one where she's in the car and she throws the backpack out and says goodbye. And um, I remember... Look, she's an extreme. She, uh, she's an extreme character. She has extreme opinions, the Countess, and um, I mean, she yeah, she's trying to get rid of Melissa, obviously, on the ride. <laughs> um, but I, rem- I that was one of those moments where I was. We were we were filming just her, she and I that last little scene in the in the in the car. This may not be interesting at all, but I, I just remember the director giving me such a great note, saying, "It's just such a simple note, just saying." Be more melodramatic. And suddenly all of those lines just sort of easily worked. And then I asked Cinco, I said, can I say one of the lines from the heart, like completely the honest truth? Which, cause she says, I'm not the bad guy. And she's, I think she's taken away my, my fiance. And, and I said, I just want to say, but maybe you are the bad guy. Mm. genuinely. Mm. And I think that's one of the times where I felt I wanted my character to have a second of grounded honesty. And you may not even notice it in the thing. I mean, it may not read over, but I always thought that helped cement the our character connection. Mm. Because then she walks off and kind of ponders um, whether maybe she wasn't correct or right or that you know maybe she needed to reevaluate her her time in schmigadoon exclamation point <laughs> um but i just i think that's just part of the fun to get to try to do more takes that wouldn't necessarily be the obvious take of what you think it is but it is the one they used and i do think it it just put a second of grounding before obviously getting uh, an incredible punchline to to drive away with wow yeah Jane, we do have some audience questions that I would like to present to you, if, the, if that's okay. Because we're almost, like, how did this go by so fast? Oh, my God. Okay. We covered a lot of ground. Okay. Um, what is your, this is from, uh, is it Mizam? Is that right, Mizam? What is your greatest pearl of wisdom? You may, in uh, this, it says you may have already answered this, but what is your greatest pearl of wisdom? Question mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I I think I, I don't know if I have that exact answer for you, but I do think I may have already said it. But be, be ready for when luck comes your way. I think that is um, something that is that has guided me throughout. And I think believe in who you are. I think your your, your uniqueness is your greatest gift, mm. whatever that may be, whatever that may be. Great advice. This is from Anthony. Having gone from soap opera, soap operas, series TV, Broadway, and films, what do you like and dislike about each process? Oh, okay. 
soap operas was a great training ground for me, uh, where I learned you, you have to learn 11 to 14 pages a day of dialogue every day. Um, so that was my favorite thing was learning to make instant deci- character decisions and choices on your feet and to memorize as many pages as possible in mm-hmm. a day. Um, its drawback is probably the same thing, that you film that quickly, that you have to do 14 pages a day and make really quick instant decisions and not thought out character collaborations like we've been talking about all today. What was the other choices? Broadway, Broadway. film, series TV. Um, Broadway, the plot... Uh, Broadway is just everything to me. I don't know. I don't know really how to answer that. I don't know what the drawbacks are. Um, I think the drawbacks are maybe that I, I'm going to miss many roles that I wish I could play that will have passed me age-wise. Mm. Um, and that if anybody wants to come see my Sally Bowles, I would love to do it anywhere. <laughs> about the, the aging Sally Bowles. You could do it. You could do it. Uh, I don't know. I just think that's, I think that's uh, just the only thing that you may not be able to get all the great roles that you want to play because it didn't come around when you were the, the right age. Um, film. Film. Film, advantage that it's so highly respected and that I feel like so many people get to see it, but I also feel that way about television. The drawback is that I, I haven't really done very much of it, and I wish I could do more to learn the the art form more and and, and be better in it. Um, this is from and TV, TV, Did TV I say series, TV, TV series. Um, the po- positive is getting to really know your writers, collaborative showrunners. The, I mean, that is the mo- that's the MVP of the the show creator slash writer of of the TV series that I have been on. Getting to create a character over many years, um, learning them so in depth that it's easy to learn the lines because you kind of know what Jenna or someone would probably respond to that, um, and. The drawbacks to me are, and there's, it's a, it's a pro and a con, um, that the seasons are so short now mm. that the new format is probably, I mean, Schmigadoon does six. Um, some do uh, 10. Uh, there's very few that do 22, which is what we used to do back in the day. <laughs> um, so uh, I think, but by and there's a plus to that too, but obviously everybody knows, but by doing six or, or 10, um, there's, there's a, there's a richness that is developed into those 10 episodes, um, and a quality that you can get because you can get a bigger budget for those. Um, and you're not doing them on the fly. I mean, I feel very lucky that I crossed a time I got the experience of doing network television and, and two shows that did 22, I only feel sometimes 24 episodes a year, mm-hmm. um, where that is your only job. I mean, that, because it takes the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and feeling. And this was something I didn't know when I got on Ally McBeal that we could feel the world watching. Um, and that was really scary and special um, because it was a, it became known as a water cooler show and you would, 
you would hear people talking about the show. Like I would be driving to work and hear them analyzing the episode the night before on the radio. And I'd be like, wow, people were watching this. Like this is something people are talking about. It was a thing. And that happened to be a show where people wanted to debate what was on the night before or at least discuss it. Um, and so, yes, it's an ever-changing landscape. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you could have had one job and now you need a few, I think, to... Uh, in, in a year if you want to stay working for uh, a lot of the year. Hmm. And I love working, so. <laughs> this is from Flo and Lana. How do you decide which project to take the time to prepare an audition for? I think that feeling that I described, that instant, I either know this character or I want to play this character, or I want to learn more about the character. Um, yeah, yeah, th- that's that's it. I think it's just that innate feeling and and obviously and and definitely the people that are all involved i mean the the writer or creator that you're going to get to work with the director that you're going to get to work with what you could learn from it um that collaboration Hmm. this is from ken as someone who knows theater and loves it is there any part of making a show like schmigadoon that felt like putting on a show on stage or did it feel entirely like TV and film? The whole thing felt like, let's go put on a show um, in the greatest way. Um, season one especially was filmed completely um, like, uh, a, I, I call it proscenium, where all the numbers were choreographed out um, as if there was a, an audience there. And the camera only shot us from the front 99% of the time. Um so we, the numbers were rehearsed full out, front out. Uh, and so we filmed every number in season one head to toe, like a live musical number. We sang live, we performed the whole number live, and we would do a bunch of takes, but I think they would, they would select from those full shots. Season two, because it became an entire city and we shot it, we, it was intentional to be very different and look different and feel different. And, you know, the first day we all walked onto set because the first set was like a little jewel box. Um, and then this, we walked into a town. We walked into Chicago. Um, (laughs) and you know, it was all neon lights and the, the billboards and the, the streets named after more Easter eggs, all the streets named after composers and writers on Broadway. And, um, and that we shot some proscenium style, as I call it, or bells and whistles was shot in little sections because that number was 360. So there was no way we could do it head to toe. Um, for the camera, it just, we would be wasting a lot of time. So we would do the sections that would be this way. And then we'd do the sections that would be that way. Um, and, you know, and all around the room, um, in one day, we, we, we filmed that entire number in, in one day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, this is from Jewel. How do you stay healthy and strong mentally through job changes and the changes in the industry? And thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for coming. I don't know if I keep myself so mentally well when I'm in between jobs. I don't, I don't think so. Um, you should ask the people that I live with. <laughs> um, I'm definitely happier when I'm working, and um, I love it. And um, how... I will say when you, when I became a mother, 
um, the, the downtime shifted for me. The downtime wasn't always about what is, what, what is the next thing I might be able to audition for? When will I work again? Um, I hope it's soon. I hope it's something I love. Um, it, it, it be, you, you, you share. He became my number one priority, mm. basically, in life. And I think that's, that's correct and right. And I know from the day he was born, every choice and decision of jobs that I've gotten or have been able to take has been fully considering him first and full stop. Mm-hmm. And that does change your, your perspective of things. Um, there's a lot of things I can't go do because I don't want to leave him for mm-hmm. a long period of time or that I... It, it, does it film in the summer? That would be great because I could go there. Schmigadoon is always filmed in the summer. He's come every time that we filmed the show and he's in love with Vancouver where we shot the first two seasons. And, um, I love that when he can come with me and we can share in the experience and, um, do it together. And you have to also remember he was born during 30 Rock. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get another show in New York with Tina Fey and those guys called The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So I, <laughs> thank you. So the first, um, I, I, I was lucky enough to f- work in television in New York City for, I think, what equals up to almost 11, uh, 11 12 years. And so the first five or six years of his life, I didn't work outside of, of the city, which was a gift. And, um, and wonderful. And now he's a little bit older. So now we like are choosing which ones, you know, he can come to and which ones he can. Or as I say, the summer is always great. And I'm always <laughs> hoping for a great opportunity in the summer. This is from Randy. What was the rehearsal process like for Starlight Express? And then in parentheses, <laughs> skating. <laughs> different. <laughs> it was different. Um, we started at Westbeth. Do you know West, West, the open, big open space downtown? They, this was before I think these things were made. Um, they strapped foam. I'm not kidding. Like foam pads around our, our butts and, cause we were going to fall a lot. So they wanted us to be able to fall a million times a day without hurting ourselves or getting too bruised where we couldn't then rehearse tomorrow. So, um, we, I mean, we started just in circles, forwards and backwards. And then they, they built the bowls in, um, Westbeth because there was enough space. And then we would put the, literally the padding on our thighs and our butts and our lower backs. And they would just send us down. Like, <laughs> And you'd fall, you'd fall, you'd learn how to do it. Um, the, the one thing that Arlene, our, our choreographer, did, which I, I don't know why it's ingrained in my memory. Once we got to the theater, she wanted to build our muscles up more. So she made us skate on the carpet inside what is now the Gershwin Theater. The Gershwin theater. I was about to age myself and call it the Eurus. Um, I think it was called the Eurus. Yeah. Yeah. Express was there, but yeah. now it's called the Gershwin. And I was like, this is the hardest thing ever, but it did, it did really help build us, build up our muscles. Um, and that was a show where we lost a lot of people. <laughs> uh, people, people really got hurt. They, they really, um, people would, would get in, in accidents and hurt themselves and, um, not come back. <laughs> That's crazy. I do think though, I think about the physicality that I put into a lot of my roles. And I was thinking about it just the other day, like, wanting to come down on the trapeze and fly around at my age and uh, all this other stuff. And I, I really do think, 
I, I believe because I started as a dance student that I always wanted to bring a lot of physicality to, I think that heavily influenced why I like to bring a lot of physicality to my, my roles and my characters. I have always felt that dance when I was younger was a way for me to communicate without words. Mm. And, oh, and I don't consider myself a, you know, a professional dancer of that level, but I've always felt that that is a part of each character that I want to, that I use and that I, I like to bring into, into my roles. And I was thinking, like, why upside down? Why trapeze? Like, and I do think Starlight Express was probably a large influence as well because it was such a sporting event and the physicality was most of it. Um, and I do, I do think that probably had an influence on me wanting to learn new skills and continue that along my career. I don't know if that's the case, but I kind of feel like it had a large influence on it. I love that. You are returning to the stage with your co-star from Chicago. Thank you for and plugging Kimmy this. Kimmy Schmidt, <laughs> Titus Burgess. Yeah. Um, you're doing it in July. Yeah. Uh, get, what are you doing? It's a, it's a new show. It's a new show. Um, it'll be at the Minetta Lane Theater. It's going to be three nights, um, July 27, 28, 29. Please come if you um, are in the city in the summer. Um yeah, it's it's going to be a show that will be recorded. All three all three nights will be recorded live that that will then live on Audible. So it's an interesting creation that Titus and I are trying to do. First of all, I love Titus. We've worked together now three times and done numerous concerts together around um, the country, and we we I mean we kind of joke like when he showed up at Chicago, I was like, <laughs> what? Like, could we not work together? Um, but I couldn't think of anybody more perfect to be added to our cast, am I yeah, right? And he was yeah, amazing. He was amazing. Um, and just, just so great to have him there. And we, we have a shorthand now. Like, you know, I, I can't give you exact details of the shorthand, <laughs> but like someone will walk by and I'll look at him and we, I know we're thinking the same exact thing. Um, and so that's kind of fun and great. But yeah, we're creating a new show. Um, it's called Center of the Universe. Um, and Y-O-U, Universe. And um, I'm really excited about it. Nick Burdone is um, writing it with and for us, who was a 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt writer. Um, I think it's going to live on that high comedy plane. Um, that is what we're kind of going for with lo- like 16 songs, uh, many solos and, and duets. Um, we're still in the rehearsal process now, so um, we're still figuring out and developing it. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I love performing with Titus, and I hope that we start here and then can bring it around and, and do it more often. I can't wait for that. I'll be there. Um, we are going to show... Bells and whistles, but I did text Titus before I um, oh, no. before this this chat, and I did want to share a quote that he asked me to share about Jane. So um, to kind of okay. close out this evening, and then bells and whistles. Before you read the quote, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. I hope this was a, an interesting evening for you all. I mean, tru- I've never done anything like this, tru- so I hope I did what you're supposed to do. Tru- truly a remarkable career, spectacular career. This is from Titus. The thing I love about the sister I've inherited is that she could easily rest on her looks. She is stunning. The only thing that upstages her beauty is how insanely gifted she is as an actress. Be it TV, film, or theater, there is no medium where Jane Krakowski does not shine. And I think that is so true. 
So I'm glad I gave him a hundred dollars last time I saw him. <laughs> <laughs> Paid for his Uber, and look what you get. No I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> That's very sweet. It makes me. It makes me. I'm always moved when people that I respect so much give compliments back. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG-AFTRA-FOUND. We'd love to hear from you.